For those remaining in the auditorium, as well as watching online, please take your Bibles, if you would, Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 18, Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 through 18. As mentioned, this morning we're going to be talking about fear. Nebuchadnezzar is racked with its again. Now there is some evidence that this Nebuchadnezzar is a different Nebuchadnezzar than the Nebuchadnezzar of the first three chapters of the book of Daniel. This may indeed be the Babylonian monarch known as Nabonidus, who usurped Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the interesting things is that we know from archaeology and from history that Nabonidus actually took a decade-long hiatus from the throne in Babylon at Tema. The ancient manuscripts don't say why, but this text would tell us. It then makes sense that in Daniel chapter 5, his son Belshazzar, who is left behind, is actually the son of Nebuchadnezzar and not grandson. But whether this is Nabonidus or the same Nebuchadnezzar as the first three chapters of the book of Daniel, he is a man that is fearful for all of his power and wealth and might. And so we want to read the uh, 4 through 18 this morning. If you are new to us, welcome. Thank you for being here. We hope that you have a Bible because everything we do here is founded on and rooted in the Word of God. It's not about our opinions or uh, our uh, pet peeves or preferences. It's all about the Word of God. If you didn't bring one, that's completely fine. There should be one available to you under the chairs in front of you. And in that particular uh, copy of the Word of God, it's on page 693. 693, Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 through 18. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation." The visions of my head as I lay on my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. 
Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is the word of God. And so we have this monarch of Babylon, good indication that perhaps this is Nabonidus, who is using the title Nebuchadnezzar. Nabonidus was not a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He was a usurper to the throne, which may explain again why it seems like chapter 4 parallels a lot of chapter 2 with the visions and the inability of the Babylonian magicians and Chaldeans and astrologers to uh, come up with the interpretation, and Daniel is brought in. Perhaps Nabonidus was aware of this, if it indeed is Nabonidus, and perhaps he is not. At any rate, it unfolds in this way. Well, you first of all see the fear of an uncertain future. This is one of individuals' biggest fears, perhaps even more so than clowns in the dark. We see a lot of people in our culture and society and and throughout history attempt to discern and decipher the future. They use all kinds of methodology, tea leaves and soothsaying, tarot cards and all sorts of things we want. We think we want to know what is coming. And yet we remain fearful if we do not know the one who has the future in his hands and is already there. We have a fear, oftentimes, of an uncertain future. Notice with me, if you would, in verse 4, insecurity. Now, it's not here necessarily immediately in the verse, but it's fascinating as this plays out that this is shown. What does Nebuchadnezzar say? Now, he's already made the announcement, as we said last week in verses 1 to 3. We know the end of the story because he gives us the end at the beginning. What does he say as he recounts for us this story? He says, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now, if that's the case, what would you expect his frame of mind to be? If there are the battles have all been fought, the money is there in great supply, peace is over all things, what would you expect his mind to be? It would expect him to be at a level of security. Things are good. There's no need for disruption. There's no mental anguish. Everything is fine. And yet we know that oftentimes those that look the most prosperous and appear on the outside to have it all together are in fact inside a raging reality of insecurity. And this definitely is the case with Nebuchadnezzar. Because immediately when he has this dream, notice in the next verse he says that he was afraid 
and that the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. If truly he was at peace and prospering and at rest, nothing should have knocked him off of that. Nothing should have dissuaded him from that. His foundation should have been stable, strong, and firm. But it's not. So I would submit to you this morning that if you're trusting in anything other than the living God, you have an insecurity. There is an instability in your foundation. Because financial resources can disappear fairly quickly. Health can be gone in an instant. Whatever you might be trusting in or rooting your life in, if it's anything other than the one who has all things under his graciously sovereign hand, you are insecure, even though on the outside you may appear not to be. Notice then in the second verse, or in verse 5, sorry, there is an uncertain future. He sees this dream and it says that it made him afraid and it alarmed him. And go back, if you would, to chapter 2 and verse 1. This happens to Nebuchadnezzar 2. If indeed this is a different individual with uh, the same title. But in chapter 2 and verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Seems to be an idea in Nebuchadnezzar, or indeed if this is Nabonidus' head, that these dreams are about him. And it starts off great, as Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 also started off well. But then things get interesting. And things get so scary, fear-inducing, that it alarms him and he wakes up very afraid. You'll note from Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, it says that there was an urgency because Daniel asked, why is this so urgent? I must know the dream and its interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar here in chapter 4 seems the same. In the span of one verse, he goes from being at ease and prospering, outwardly secure, but inwardly insecure because in the span of one verse, he is completely knocked off of that ease and prospering. He is troubled and afraid. Notice the fear is prolonged because he makes this decree. But what happens in verse 7, they could not make known to me its interpretation. He goes to his cadre of counselors, and they can't come back to him with a, an interpretation. I have to know what this means. And nobody can answer this for him. It's got to be frustrating, certainly for him, but also for this individuals that, that are professional vision interpreters. That's what they do. They have one job, and they can't do it in this case. And again, as we saw in chapter 2, it just shows the, the unreliability of the world's methods, and the world's seeming experts. We don't have an answer for this. We don't know what this is. You notice in verse 8 and 9, he calls Daniel before him, but there's some hints in the text that he has a fear of the actual truth. He has a fear of the reality. At last, Daniel came in before me, and notice the parentheses here, the dash. What does he say? He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God. 
Verse 9, O Belteshazzar. It's almost as if, in the recounting of the story, at this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar wants to make very clear to his audience that Daniel is not necessarily connected to the one true God, but in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he is still controllable. Do you see how he, how he sort of describes Daniel? Yes, the spirit of the most high gods or the spirit of the, of the holy gods is in him, but they're still his gods at this, at this moment in time. They're still the idols, Marduk and others, that he has constructed and that he worships. He just wants the audience to know, the readers to know, and, and in ancient texts, as Delroff Davis points out, they didn't have emojis, they didn't have all of these things to kind of draw our attention to the text. So twice in two verses, he mentions Daniel's new name, the name that he was given after he was taken into captivity, Belteshazzar. He, he, he's not connected to the one true God, the one true God doesn't exist at this point in the story. No, no, no. He's one, yes, it's the most holy gods. He's sort of on the ranking of the gods. He's up there, but, it, but not, not Yahweh, not, not the almighty God. He, he's one of us still. He's, he's in that grouping of gods. My guys couldn't come up with the answer, so yes, I do have to go to this Jew, this Judean, but his name's not Daniel, okay? It's, it's Belteshazzar, just so everybody understands I'm happy that he's here and that he's able to give me this interpretation, but I just want everybody to know that this comes from my gods. It's still in my world, my realm. There's that fear of the actual truth. I will know that this, this changes, thanks be to God, by the end of this chapter. Now, of course, we have the fearful dream recounted in verses 10 through 16, and in this case, it's different. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar says, you need to tell me what the dream was and its interpretation. In this case, Nebuchadnezzar or Nabonidus, he lets them know what the dream is. What he's looking for is an interpretation. And so in 10 to 12, we have the benevolent monarch. In similar fashion to Nebuchadnezzar, either the same or the one before him, Babylon is the ruling nation of the known world. And notice that everyone benefits from that. Power is always intended by God to be used for the good of those that are under the powerful person's care. This is the correct understanding of power and the way that God uses his power. It's always to be benevolent. This tree, representative of Nebuchadnezzar or Nabonidus, and we know that it's representative of him because you'll notice there's a, there's a change in the pronouns. Because it says, his mind, him, it, it changes from a tree to a person later on in the vision, as we'll see. Everyone is benefiting from the Babylonian kingdom. The birds of the air come and find their houses in the branches. The beasts of the field find shade under it. There's abundant fruit for all. But notice then in verses 13 and 14, there is devastating destruction. A watcher, a holy one. And again, whether this is the same Nebuchadnezzar or not, whether he's comparing this to the fourth person that was in the fiery furnace or not, the presence of this individual is what causes him to fear. He comes down and proclaims and says what? Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Devastating destruction. Impact not only on the tree, obviously, but all of the globe, the known world, who was benefiting from the tree's existence. 
And then something shifts in verses 15 and 16 as mentioned because it is no longer a tree but a person. The stump is to be left in the earth, but it is to be bound with a band of iron and bronze. And then notice the, the, the shift. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion, let his mind, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This is the fate of the monarch, and this is what has Nebuchadnezzar so upset. Love the idea of everybody paying obeisance to me. Love the idea of me providing for everybody. Love the idea of the power and the glory and the fame. But this, this, I don't like at all. Something's going on here. What does this mean? The tree is cut down and stripped of its branches. This isn't good. And what does it mean that, that a, a beast's mind will be given to him, that he'll be removed from society until seven times passes over him? What does this what does this mean? What's going on here? I need to have answers. The key text then in our passage comes in verse 17. It also reappears in verse 25 and verse 32, which we'll not address this morning. But repetition is oftentimes used in ancient texts to catch our attention. This is the key in verse 17. This sentence on the tree that is representative of a person is by decree of the watchers, the decision of the word of the holy ones. Why? To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This seems to be a hard truth for those that do not worship God to hear and understand and to accept. Nebuchadnezzar believes that he is God. God gives him an image, and he is the head of gold on this image. But all the kingdoms of men are crushed and destroyed, but the rock not cut out with human hands. Jesus Christ the righteous. What is Nebuchadnezzar's response to this vision? Humility. Amazing. Christ is bigger than me. God is over me. That's fantastic. I'll rule in humility from now on. Is that Nebuchadnezzar's response? No. Let me make an image. It's 90 feet tall, not just with a head of gold, but the whole thing of gold, and let's worship that. And then God has to humble him again with the fiery furnace episode. And now you have in verse in chapter 4, if this is indeed another individual with the same title, Nebuchadnezzar, who needs to be taught this lesson as well. You are not... God. There is one, and you're not him. You're not in control. It's not about you. It's not for your praise and your glory. Stuff and pleasure and fame for yourself. It's not what it's about. There is one who is the Most High, and he is the one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords over all human kingdoms. He is the one that sets people up. And he is the one that gives kingdoms to the lowliest of men. He is the one that's in control. Now see, this is a truth that Daniel believes. Daniel has been taught it from a young man under the revival under King Josiah. He knows the one true God. He's believed it from the earliest times. And now as a young man, although an older man in this passage, he believes this. 
He is not shaken by the news. CNN and MSNBC and Fox and the Globe and Mail and the National Post and CBC do not rattle Daniel. Daniel does not obsess over articles in the Chronicle Herald and the Guardian. Daniel does not spend copious hours on the internet scouring for the latest tidbit and news. Daniel does not wear a tin hat and Daniel does not follow the YouTube channel of numerous conspiracy theorists. Daniel is not shaken by whatever comes because Daniel stands firm on this, something he stood firm on his whole life. God is sovereign. Whatever comes, comes from his hand. Daniel is not in control. Daniel is not over all of the universe. Daniel's word does not mean much as it relates to authority. Daniel understands that there is a God and it's not him. And although as he interprets this vision as we're going to see as we continue to move through this passage, it alarms him in the sense of he knows what's about to happen to Nebuchadnezzar or Nabonidus. It doesn't alarm him in the sense that his whole world is shattered because he stands firm in the sovereignty of the one who has all things under control. It is the same spirit found in the three friends. Nebuchadnezzar, know this. You don't need to play the music a second time. We can't bow down and worship this because we already worship the one true God. And if he saves us, and he's able to, fantastic. But if he doesn't, we get to go be with him, so fantastic too. (laughs) How many believers in Jesus Christ become rattled deeply shaken, rug pulled out from underneath them with the news as crazy and as troubling as it is. We should not be ruled by fear, but we should be people of faith. Doesn't mean we're unaware, doesn't mean we're ignorant, but it does mean that it doesn't change our entire worldview when bad things happen, especially when they happen to us, because we trust the one who is in control of all things, or ought to. So the living should know this, that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. God is in control. There is always somebody above every president, prime minister, monarch, tyrant, despot. There's always somebody greater. And his name is the one true God. Notice then in the last verse this fearful anticipation. This is the dream I saw. And you, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom were not able to make it known to me. But you were able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. I've waited long enough. I need answers. Here is the ruler of the known world. This monarch over the ancient nation of Babylon, renowned for its hanging gardens and for its military prowess and for its lavish wealth, he's reduced to a quivering mass of fearfulness. I need to know this. A dream, one dream, fells him. It should not be the case for us who believe in the one true God. There should be no news, no information, 
No fearful anticipation of the future that reduces us down to this level. Why is that? Because Jesus alleviates our fear, and that is our final point this morning. There are three main fears that we see articulated in Scripture. There is the fear of financial ruin, there is the fear of death, and there's the fear of man. And I would add a fourth one into that mix, a fear of an uncertain future, which is the fear that Nebuchadnezzar Nabonidus has. So follow with me, if you would, just a few passages over in the New Testament, because only Jesus can alleviate our fear. Go with me to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus is in control of the future. He's already there. He is, I am. Not I was or I will be, but I am. Jesus came and said to them, and who is the them? It's his disciples, and notice what it says in verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Just quickly walk through the roller coaster in your minds of what these guys have gone through. Jesus is the Messiah, and what have they seen? They have seen things that are more amazing than anything we've ever seen. They've seen Jesus walk on water. They've seen Jesus feed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. They've seen Jesus heal the lame and the blind and the deaf. They've seen Jesus on multiple occasions raise somebody back to life from the dead. And then they watched as Jesus was crucified. None of this makes sense. And then they saw the empty tomb. And then they saw Jesus resurrected to life from the dead. But they're human just like all of us. So Jesus says to them, Because some are still doubting, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus holds the future in his hands. He's already there. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. There is no greater power than the one who spoke all things into existence. There is nothing that we can face in life that is greater or more powerful than the God of heaven. And if we are his through Jesus by the Spirit, then we have nothing to fear when it comes to the future. He's already there. He's already mapped it out. And so what does he tell us to do? Go and make disciples, (laughs) baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Our task has not magically changed because of a virus. Our task has not changed because of war and upheaval around the globe. Our task has not changed because of politics here at home. Our task has not changed because of a certain medical diagnosis. Our task has not changed because of natural disasters. Our task is the same as when Jesus gave it to his disciples. Go and make more because I'm with you. 
I will never leave you or forsake you. Notice in the second place, not all that, but Jesus takes care of all our needs. We are afraid oftentimes of financial ruin. We're afraid of not having enough. Go to Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Familiar passages, but ones we oftentimes forget. Jesus, here in the Sermon on the Mount, says in Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what will you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Does not mean that we don't need to work. Does not mean that we're not good stewards of the things that God gives us. What it does mean is that the fear of financial ruin, the fear of not having enough stuff, should not bind us, should not control us, should not stop us, should not even stall us. Our God will provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Matthew 10. 26 to 33, Jesus has conquered death. He says in verse 16 and, and following that there is going to become persecution. We have not faced this, but we may yet. And so what does Jesus say? Matthew 10, 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Fear of death can be a paralyzing fear, but it ought not to be a paralyzing fear to those who have been redeemed by the one who conquered death. Death could not hold Christ. He rose from the grave. Death has no hold on him. And for those of us in him, death has no hold on us. It is a translation from this life to the life to come. 
from glory to glory. It can be a paralyzing thing, the fear of death. And Jesus says, people are going to hold that over you in persecution. Do not fear the one who can only take your life. Fear the one who has your life and your soul in his care. And lastly, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Jesus gives us our identity. We find our identity in him. The fear of man is very strong, and only Jesus can relieve us from it. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Interesting description. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace." We do crazy things when we're in love with somebody. I'm in love with this person and I don't care who knows it. That ought to be the same with Jesus. The fear of man can paralyze us, keep us from speaking, keep us from living, keep us from integrity. And this woman comes in to this private banquet and does not care who sees her and does not care that the whole town knows her as a sinner. But she knows this because of who Jesus is, the love that he has. She can go to him. She does not have to run from him. And it's the same with us. If you're here this morning and your life has fear, Maybe one of the ones that we started service with, or maybe one of these deeper ones. Fear of an uncertain future. Fear of death. Fear of financial ruin. Fear of what other people think. Jesus is here to alleviate all those fears. We have fear because we are sinners. We fear ultimately the wrath of God. And as I quoted earlier, 1 John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with judgment. You are more deeply known by the God of heaven than you could possibly imagine. 
and you are more richly loved by him than you could possibly hope for. He knows all the stuff that you're afraid anybody else might find out. He knows all of your deepest, darkest fears. He knows your guilt and he knows your shame. He knows it all. He loved you enough to take the penalty for all of that upon himself so that you could have eternal life in him. He loves you enough to stand you on your feet if you repent and have faith and trust in him and him alone so that the foundation under those feet is his firm sovereignty, his gracious oversight over all things. And you no longer have to live with any fear, especially paralyzing fear, because the God of heaven rules and reigns. And if you're one of his children, you have nothing to fear. And all of that is available through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so here you have this contrast. Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus. Royal robes, wealth, power, clicks his fingers, whatever he wants comes to him. Authority, fame, beauty, pleasure. And there you have Daniel, a slave a Jewish exile, a foreigner. And yet the one stands in fear, completely rattled and undone by a single dream. And the other stands in faith, not ultimately shaken by anything that comes his way. Might look on the outside like you got it all together. But you know, deep down, where you're actually at. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Only he can give us this faith and trust in him. So we can stand firm in his gracious sovereignty. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons that we can learn even from a pagan monarch who seems to have it all together but is racked with fear, anxiety, worry, and insecurity. Something's coming and he doesn't know what And that stops him in his tracks. And then you have Daniel, and Daniel is not the hero of this story. You are the hero of every story. But Daniel, because of your grace and mercy, has faith in you. And regardless of what this dream is and or its interpretation, Father, he is not shaken. He is not moved. Because internally, he has a firm foundation on your gracious sovereignty. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know this, does not know this truth that can eradicate fear, that can cause them to go through life without this type of debilitating worry and anxiety, Father, may they come to Jesus. They fear your judgment. May they know your love. 
And Father, for those of us that do know you, that are your children, may we feed on your word and on truth. May we not be rattled and shaken by all the news, which is unfortunately almost exclusively negative and bad and troubling. Because, Father, you are above it all, over it all, in and through it all. And all praise and glory goes to you. Give all things under your control. Give us faith and trust and hope in you. So we may share that with those around us who are fearful, scared, and insecure. Help us, Father. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.